Colossians. Colossians chapter number three is where we'll find our text this evening. And we're going to finish out this chapter that we began a couple of weeks before our revival meeting. And we're talking in this particular chapter about living the risen life. Of course, that takes us all the way back to Colossians chapter number three and verse number one, where the Bible says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And uh, there is an expectation that God has for us uh, who are in Christ, who are risen with Christ to live like it. And, uh, and so we've been talking about that. And of course, we've compared or we have equated uh, what is described in Colossians chapter number three as really a, a biblical look at revival. Uh, it's living the Christian life as God would have us uh, to live it. And so tonight, we're going to finish out the uh, second part of, of this particular chapter. So Colossians chapter number three is where we'll uh, find our text. And again, uh, if, you're, if you found it there, uh, look with me, if you would, down just a little bit later in the chapter. And notice what the Bible says in verse number 16. This is where we're going to begin tonight, where the Bible says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, <clears throat> excuse me, in hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Well, as we said uh, just a moment ago, that in preparation really for uh, this revival meeting that we just finished up this past Wednesday, we looked at Colossians chapter number three, and we looked at Paul's urging the believers to live a life that is risen with Christ. Understanding this, that we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but rather we are alive in Christ. And you may remember that the risen life features new priorities. Going all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, in verses one to nine, we discover the priority of eternity and the priority of purity. And so as believers, as Christians, as those who are risen with Christ, uh, we are emphasizing these things above everything else. We're emphasizing eternity, and then we're emphasizing or prioritizing our own purity. And then we said in the last time that we were together that the risen life features a new wardrobe. He says we need to put off some things, and then we need to put on some things. And we discovered those in verses 10 through 15. And though the week of revival has come and gone, the need for revival, I suppose, in our hearts and in our lives and certainly in our church is still very much alive and well. I believe Colossians 3 again provides a template or a, a pattern for the revived or the risen life. And in other words, if we were to live, if we were to live out what is taught in Colossians chapter number 3, I believe that there is no doubt that we would have revival in our lives. We would have it in our homes, and we certainly would have it here in our church. You might ask yourself the question, what is revival? What is revival? We've, we've talked a lot about it here in recent days, and I must tell you that there's two different thoughts or ideas of exactly what revival is. There are some people that believe that uh, revival is a sort of a mysterious, spontaneous, uh, unpredictable event that is sent as a, as a sovereign act of God. In other words, in other words, we're just, we're just going through life and we're sitting in church and we're, 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 we're listening to the preaching and the teaching and wham, all of a sudden, God sends revival. There's a lot of people that think that's what revival is. Well, we didn't expect it tonight. We didn't, we didn't come to church anticipating that we were gonna have revival, but my soul, God sent us revival. I just want you to know that's, that's not what revival is. Revival is not some mysterious, unexpected, unpredictable event in which God just kind of slaps us over the head with it and all of a sudden we are revived. Nothing, listen, nothing could be further from the truth. I want you to understand something that, listen, when revival comes, when revival comes to a church, when it comes to a home, when it comes to an individual, it is never a surprise. It's not a shock. Not a surprise at all. 
numerous times I've had folks come into my office or I've counseled with folks and they've said something like this to me. They said, you know, Pastor Pete, God's been doing a work in my heart and in my life and I, I just believe that God is leading me to do this or God is leading me to do that. And, w- and would you believe that every single time, without fail, when they tell me that, it's almost as if I, I could tell them what is, what is coming before they even tell me. Sometimes, sometimes people set up a meeting with me and I wonder, I wonder what it's about. And then sometimes people set up a meeting with me and I, and I know immediately what it's about. God's doing a great work in their heart and they want to talk to me about it. And you know why I know that? Because I can see it. I can see it in the way that they're living. I can see it in the way that they're carrying themselves and they're conducting themselves. There is, a, there is an element of growth that they're experiencing in their life. And I just want you to know something. The revival is the same way. Revival does not come as this, as this meteoric uh, surprise that just flies into our world and, and interrupts our life. No, no, revival is so different than that. Revival comes from God, not as a sovereign act of his will that sort of surprises us. We're not ready for it. We're not prepared for it. We're not seeking after it. No, nothing could be further from the truth. Revival comes from God as a response to his people when there is an attitude of confession, repentance, and restoration or restitution. That's what revival is. When God's people, listen, when God's people start to get real with him and real with others, and they start to get more than just real with him, but when they start to get right with him and they start to get right with others and they begin to call their sin by its name and they confess it and they repent from it and they begin to seek to make restitution for it. Listen, listen, revival at that point is not far away. That's what revival really is. So long as we're content where we are, there can be no revival. Until we acknowledge our sin and our wickedness and we repent of it, there can be no revival. If we'll be honest with ourselves, a careful reading of Colossians 3 reveals, I would say, much room for improvement in the lives of most of God's people. Many Christians today, listen, are not living the risen life, but instead they remain in the graveyard wearing wearing their old grave clothes that they used to wear before they met Christ. And I'm praying that God's word would produce conviction in all of our hearts, mine included, as we continue this look at the risen life and at revival given to us in Colossians chapter number three. And we said a few weeks ago that the risen life features new priorities. We said that it features a new wardrobe. But notice, notice the next thought here that comes to us in verse number 16, and that is this, that the risen life features New influences. The risen life features new influences. Would you look in verse number 16 again? Let the word of Christ dwell in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now I discover in this particular, in this particular verse, one verse, I discover three influences that the Holy Spirit of God says ought to be present and ought to be very influential in the life of someone who is risen with Christ. Now let's stop and think about influences for just a moment. You know as well as I do that the influences of this life are vast and they're overwhelming. In fact, everyone you meet and everything that you come in contact with, listen, wants to speak into your life, wants to influence you, and help you to make decisions. Uh, Paul lived in a, in a much different day than our world is today. In Paul's world, think about this, there were no cell phones. Now those things are pretty influential, aren't they? Paul didn't have a cell phone. Never heard of such a thing. Never, never could have imagined. In fact, some of you, you've, you've been around a little bit longer than others, and you think to yourself, when I was a young person, I never could have imagined we'd have anything like this. Well, if you couldn't have imagined something 60 years ago, imagine 2,000 years ago, Paul could not have imagined such a thing as a cell phone. I challenge you, next time you're in an airport, or you're in a place where there's a lot of people, just, just stop for just a moment and take a look around you, and look at how many people are on their cell phones. No, I, I, I have to tell you that I'm just as guilty as anybody. I've got my cell phone on me just about at all times, checking it and looking at it and what's happening here and what's happening there and let me get this update and let me get that update and let me check my messages and let me check my voicemail and let me check my email and let me check this and let me check that. Paul, Paul lived in a world with no such thing. 
There were no cell phones. There was no social media. There's no Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and what are the other ones? I don't even know what the other ones are. There's a million of them out there. Did you know that? Uh, there are. In fact, in fact, you know, those are sort of the big three, right? We think of the big three. Uh, Instagram, I think Twitter and Facebook. But, but, but parents, you better know that there's like, there's, your, your children know of like the big 300. And there's a million of them. And they know all about them. And they're involved in a lot of them. They've got accounts. And they're staying up to, staying up to date with this thing. Um, there, was no, there was no social media in Paul's day. No televisions. No podcasts. YouTube didn't exist. I don't suppose really there was, well, I know there was no digital advertisement. I don't even know that there was much print advertisement unless somebody was a really good drawer because they didn't have the ability to print things. So they, they, they didn't hold newspapers in their hands. They, they didn't read magazines. They, uh, they, they, they didn't even, even have, have books. If they did, they were extremely rare and you'd have to go to probably some library to, uh, to, to get a hold of one. You probably couldn't take it with you. They didn't have any of those things, Period. None of them. There was no computers. There was no internet. There was no radio. None of those things existed. And yet, despite a more simple life, Paul still acknowledges the importance of counteracting the worldly influences in our lives with spiritual influences. In other words, though they did not have any of those things, Paul says, listen, you better listen to me and you better make sure, you better make sure that you counteract the, the wicked and the worldly and the evil influences of this life. You better make sure that you counteract them with some spiritual influences. If you're going to be risen with Christ, understand that there's a world that's going to try to influence you and there's a world that's going to try to get you to think like they think and to talk like they they talk and to process things like they process and you better make sure you better make influence in your life so he gives us in verse 16 he gives us three influences that the risen life features and i want you to notice them with me the first influence is the influence of god's word where he says let the word of christ Dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now notice Paul writes that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us. That that word let is so important. It is so key. Because you see, with most of our influences, there is a choice that we must make. Every day of your life, every day of your life, you must decide what you're going to allow to influence you. And every day of your life, you're going to have to make the decision as to whether or not God's word is going to have the opportunity to influence you in your life. Will you let it influence you? Will you let it influence your life and your home? God's word, listen, it influences us when we read it, when we study it, memorize it, meditate on it, and obey it. Now, many of you, one of the comments that you made about our speaker this past week, Brother Getch, was the, that you were so taken with his ability to memorize scripture. He didn't tell you this, uh, but, but we got it out of him that he has over 14,000 Bible verses memorized. Now, just to give you an idea of how much that is, as far as we know, the Bible has 31,000 some odd verses in it. So nearly half of this book he has memorized. We were in a meeting we were in a meeting with him uh, as a pastoral team, and, and, uh, and I, I think it was in that meeting. I asked him, I said, how did that get started? How did that happen? I mean, you, you and I both know that that doesn't just happen. And he, he actually said to me, he said, you know, well, I'll tell you, it's sort of a funny story. He said, I was preparing to preach a message, and, and, uh, and it was going to be a gospel presentation. He said, I just felt impressed of the Lord that, that this would be much more effective if I could memorize the, the verses and I could quote them. He says, I was in a meeting, I think it was the first night of this particular meeting, and so he said, I got up there, and I think he said, I memorized about 20 verses for that particular message, and he said, I was able to quote them uh, by, by, by just, you know, by, by not even looking, and he said, he said, it just seemed to have so much more power than if I was actually reading the scripture, the, the ability to be able to quote them. And, uh, and he said, when that service came to a conclusion, he said, I think there were folks that were saved that night, and God really worked. And he said that the Lord, that, that, not the Lord, he said the people came to him and they said, Brother Getch, we, we, we just love to hear you quote verses. We can't wait to come back tomorrow night to hear you quote more verses. And he said, to, he said to us, he said, I thought to myself, well, those are the only verses I've memorized. I'm in some serious trouble. And that began for him a process of memorizing verses. And he, and he did admit to us, he said, it, it, it did come fairly easy to me. 
but maybe it was maybe it was in a public setting, maybe even in church, where he talked about or it might have been actually, you know, it was in that it was in that particular meeting. He said, however, there are some verses and some books that are just harder to memorize than others. So there's work that is involved. But wouldn't you agree with me? Someone that has memorized fourteen thousand Bible verses has let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. Would, would we not be able to agree on that? And one thing that I've heard over and over again uh, from our people, and I, and, I, and I thought this was fascinating because most of you are unfamiliar with him, but I've heard over and over again just how powerful his preaching was and how God used it to speak to your heart and how you, you looked forward to coming to the church house to hear uh, the preacher preach and that the messages, um, they, they, were not, they were not long or lengthy in your mind because of, again, just how captivated you were. And can I just tell you something? that Listen, that type of preaching comes to the individual who has let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. So you and I, listen, we must, we must, we must allow the influence of God's word uh, to be a uh, to have the, the premier position in our lives, you you and I are not in, as influenced by God's word as we think we are. We're really not. And can I say that you're not as influenced by God's word as you think you are? If the only Bible you're getting each week is when you come to church, you see, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of people that think, well, I mean, I'm letting the word of Christ dwell dwell in me richly. I went to church twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday. Well, I'm doing something. I mean, compare and contrast that with the people that just come on Sunday morning only, or, or what about my neighbor who hasn't darkened the door of a church in 25 years? Well, here's what we would say. We would say this, perhaps that person's not living the risen life. Perhaps that person has not risen with Christ. If you are risen with Christ, then you need to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Here's the question, why should we desire the influence of God's word? Well, because he tells us in, in this verse, because in it we find all wisdom. We find all wisdom. It, whatever it is that you're facing tonight, whatever it is that you're dealing with tonight, whatever is weighing you down, whatever is burdening you tonight, guess what? <clears throat> There's an answer right here in this book. There's an answer in this book. And we go online and, and we call our friends and we text everybody and we you know, we turn on our, uh, our, our, our favorite philosopher on television who, who normally gives maybe our, some sound advice or we watch this program or that program or we go to the library, we pick up this book or that book and we never, listen, we never stop to figure out what is it that God has to say about this matter. But the word of Christ will in you richly. The Bible says in Proverbs 2, 6, and 7, For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. James three seventeen says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. You know what you need in your life? of God's word. But notice secondly, there's a second influence that's identified in verse number 16. And that is the influence of godly believers. The influence of godly believers. Look, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing. Notice the next two words, one another. One another. Oh, we need, listen, we need the influence of godly believers. Do you know that God so what did God do? God created a family. God took one man and one woman and brought them together. And he said this. He says, listen, it's not good for the two of you to remain alone for the rest of your life. He says, here's what I want you to do. I'm commanding you to be fruitful and to multiply. And so they began to have children. And God blessed them as a married couple. And they had children. And those children grew. And they had children. And, and, and they began to populate the earth, the Bible tells us. But then God, then God gave us, God gave us something very, very special in the New Testament. He gave us something called the church. God gave us the church to uh, fulfill this, this longing in our lives for uh, companionship and to carry out the great commission. Listen, God never wanted us to live this life alone. He's given us the, the resource of a church uh, for godly influences. Listen, here, here's what you understand. Likely, your coworkers are not all that concerned with spiritual growth and development. You came to church Sunday night of last week and Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night, and man, you're stirred up and you, you went home and, and probably you did not go into the office the next day. Probably you did not go in the office the next day and, and, and rally everybody together and say, let me tell you what God spoke to my heart about last night. And if you did, I think that'd probably be a, not a bad thing to do, but 
And you understand, right, that these, these relationships are really not all that compatible. They don't get us, and, 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 and to be honest with you, we shouldn't get them either. Sadly, many times we do. And God, listen, here, here's, here's what God designed the church for. God designed the church for you to, for you to talk to one another and to encourage one another. To talk about what God's doing in your heart and in your life. There's nothing wrong with talking about politics and talking about sports and talking about current events. But I wonder sometimes how many of us uh, find ourselves on a regular basis talking to other people about what God is doing in our heart and in our church. Uh, earlier this week, I, I was preparing some messages. I might, have, I might have alluded to this this morning, but I was preparing the messages for Sunday. And I was just overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed as I was preparing these messages with this feeling of inadequacy, total inadequacy. And so I just, I just picked the phone up and I, I texted several of our guys that, that do some of the other preaching around here and, and, uh, and they serve in, in that capacity. I said, you guys don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to preach after John Getch has preached in this place. And I meant it sincerely. I, I wasn't, you know, uh, there was, that was not a humble brag or anything whatsoever. I, I literally felt so inadequate. Like, they just had a steady diet of him, and now they got to deal with me. And um, do, you know, do you, know, you know, one of those guys, one of those guys texted back, and here's what he said. He said, man, we had a great revival. And then he said, he said this. He said, what did God speak to your heart about in that revival? He, he, tur- he totally turned the whole course of that conversation around. I started it out sort of as a woe is me type of a thing. And, you know, man, I got it so bad. I got to stand and preach, try to preach after that guy preached. And, you know, poor me, you know, pray for me, feel sorry for me. And, and he turned the whole thing around and he just said, what is God doing? And you know what that, you know what that is? That's, that's the, the influence of godly believers. And we all need that. that. And, and, and we need one another. We need to, the Bible says, teaching and admonishing one another. Your coworkers and your neighbors on your street and people you went to high school with, likely they're not going to influence you to be a better Christian. They're not going to influence you to be better morally. They're not going to influence you to be better in, in the realm of faithfulness. They're not going to influence you to be better in the realm of Christian growth and development. They're just not going to. But your church friend should. Your pastor should. Your believing friends should. And can I say, listen, it is not enough for you just to come to church. It's not enough just to come to church. If you're part of this fellowship, can I tell you that God expects you, listen, God expects you to do some teaching and admonishing as well. Now let that sink in for just a minute. Because the book of Colossians was not just written to the pastor at the church of Colossae. It's written to all the believers. So here's the question, who are you teaching? And who are you admonishing? Because it says teaching and admonishing one another and can I just tell you that as the pastor of this church, if I'm the only one who is doing any teaching around here, if I'm the only one who's doing any preaching or any admonishing around here, then we are not getting the job done that we're supposed to be getting done. Because every, every person that names the Cleveland Baptist Church as their church home, they ought, to, they ought to read that and they ought to say, well, that's me. I have a responsibility to teach someone. I have a responsibility to admonish someone. Can I say not only... Should you do some teaching and admonishing? But every one of us ought to be open to some teaching and some admonishing as well. You see, listen, if you're part of this church, you are part of the one another. Every service that you miss, or every service in which maybe you're, in the, you're on the property, but you're not sitting under the teaching and under the influence of the admonishing or under the preaching. Um, every service, it, that could be the very one, that could be the very teaching and the very admonishing that you so desperately need. So listen, there's the influence of godly believers. There's the influence of God's word, but notice there's a third influence found in verse number 16. And that is the influence of godly music. The influence of godly music He says, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You know, music is so important, isn't it? I mean, so important. Sometimes, you know, you've heard preachers do this. Perhaps maybe even I've done it. Preachers sometimes, they um, they downplay the, the role of music. And I'll just let you in on a little secret. The preacher thinks he's the most important person in the whole world, you know. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he thinks, you know, it's, it's all about me. And may God drive any of those thoughts far from us. 
those thoughts of pride and, 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 and arrogance. The truth of the matter is, oh, God uses, God uses music to minister our hearts. Didn't Brother Paul's special this morning minister to our hearts? Oh, so moving, wasn't it? So beautifully done. Special tonight, the choir, this morning and this evening, all of it, the instruments and, and, and the folks that have spent hundreds if not thousands of hours practicing and mastering an instrument so that they can use it as an offering to the Lord. Oh, music is so important. In fact, it's so important as to be included in the influences that should be in the life of one who is living the risen life. Now listen, I'm not a musician, nor have I, nor have I studied music in great detail, but I think, I think we all would agree on this one particular thought, and that is this, that music is quite influential. It's extremely influential. Um, let me try to illustrate this for just a moment. Imagine, imagine a movie with no music in it. Have you ever, have you ever tried to think about that? I, I'm not a huge movie watcher. I, 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 can't, I can't stay awake. I'll just have to tell you, I can't stay awake in, in, for a movie and frustrates my wife. We end up getting in fights because I can't stay awake. And I'm sitting here going, well, that's not keeping you from watching it. Maybe it's my snoring. I don't know. But she'll get frustrated. Wake up. We want, I want to enjoy this with you. And I'm sitting, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm having a great time. I'm, this is wonderful. I, I just got to tell you, it's got to be a really, really good movie for me to, for me to stay awake from it. And, um, but but, but have, you ever, have you ever been watching a movie and no one is saying anything? No one is saying anything at all. But, but the music that is being played in, in the background, that is being played as you, as you watch the screen, it is, it is communicating a powerful message. If the, if the music is, um, uh, is, 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 is fast and it's frantic, it's letting you know we're coming into a really exciting part of this movie. If the music is, uh, is sort of maybe slower and it's building and, it's, and you could tell that we're going somewhere with this, you might think to yourself, oh man, this is, we're, coming to the, we're coming to the climax of this movie. We're coming to the most important part. Somebody's getting ready to die in this movie, right? <laughs> you know as well as I do that mu- mu- music in movies is so important. It's so instrumental. Uh, when was the last time you went to a professional ball game and there was no music played? Now think about that for a moment. It's so much a part of, of life and that sort of thing that we, we, we're to the point where we hardly even recognize it or realize it. But I'm just, I'm just telling you that with the exception of the actual time that the game is being played, which oftentimes is, is not very much, you know, a 60-minute football game, if there's 20 minutes of game action in that, in that football game, you're, you're lucky. But, but in every timeout and in halftime and, uh, and, and in every, every time in which they, they're not running a play at that particular moment, more often than not, there is some music that is being played. I mean, it's so important. It is so instrumental and influential in our lives. Now, here's the question. Why do they play music in these, in these places? We, we, we have this term, I don't know if we use it much anymore, but elevator music. Music in, in restaurants, you know. We were in a restaurant not too long ago, uh, right up the street, the fried chicken place up the street, Raising Cane's. We went into that restaurant, on a, I think it was on a Sunday night, and the music was so loud you could barely have a conversation. Somebody went up to the counter and said, would you guys mind turning the music down just a little bit? And they did, and it was so much, it was so much better. But, you know, you, you, go, you would not expect that kind of music to be played at the finest restaurant in town. I mean, it was loud, and it was obnoxious, and it was, it was just annoying. You're, you're not going to go to the nicest steakhouse in town, and they're going to be playing music like that. Chances are, maybe they're going to have somebody sitting at a piano playing softly, or someone going from table to table with a little violin playing, or you know, something along these lines. Some of you are looking at me like, You've ne- I've never been to a restaurant like that either. So don't. <laughs> but I, I hear that those things exist. There are places where that kind of stuff goes on. But you know, you know as well as I do that music is extremely influential. Why, why do they do it? Because listen, they understand that music sets a certain mood or a certain tone. And God, God says the same thing. God says, listen, I understand, I understand the role that music can play in your life. And if you, listen, if you'll allow the right kind of music into your life, it will influence you and it will set a certain mood or tone in your life. God understands that it, that it plays that in our lives. And, and I, there's no doubt, obviously, he references psalms here and hymns and spiritual songs. The, the psalms were known as the Hebrew hymn book. 
Spiritual songs, I, I, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for spiritual songs that were written centuries ago. And we can still sing together tonight as a church family. Uh, and and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But can I also say, I'm so thankful that God has gifted people today still who are writing beautiful songs. Songs that lift up the name of Jesus and that are, some of them are so doctrinally rich and doctrinally pure. They're just full of, 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 of the, the Lord working in, in, in people's lives and, and, and taking scripture. And, and, uh, and, and so I would just say, listen, that you should listen to songs that are spiritual so much. You should listen to those types of songs that are spiritual so much that you find yourself regularly singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Have you ever found yourself walking around one day and you're singing some song that you have heard or that you've known and you're just singing it, and, and uh, in, in our house, we'll say something like, hey, where'd, you get, where'd, where'd that come from? And sometimes I'll be like, I don't know. I don't know, I, I guess it was just in my mind. I, you know, and it's usually silly songs, songs that don't have any spiritual depth, don't, don't, aren't even spiritual at all. You know, things you hear on a commercial or you hear on the radio or maybe you hear in a movie or at a ball game or, you know, whatever the case might be. And you know what I think what I think God is saying? God is saying, listen, we ought to saturate our lives with godly music so that we just find ourselves at different points throughout our lives, at different points throughout our day, just singing and making melody with grace in our hearts to the Lord so that someone can suddenly say, say, where did that come from? I don't know where it came from. I just, I just think God is so good and I just want to praise him. Oh, listen, you, you and I need the influence of godly music. And then let me conclude tonight as we look at verses 17 to 23, and let's just talk briefly about the influence. I should say the risen life, number three, or number four, or whatever it is, number two. The risen life features a new goal. The risen life features a new goal. Would you look in verse number 17? The Bible says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. You know, most people, Christians included, myself included, are living for themselves. They are. Most of us, we're living for ourselves, what we like and what pleases us. And because of that, listen, we can find justification for just about anything, anything that we want to do. Even if, even if there's clear teaching in Scripture that forbids it, you and I, we, could, we can find some loophole, we can find some, some way to, to say, you know, that doesn't really apply to me. You know, it was written a long time ago, and in the Greek, I think what he's saying is this. So I'm good. I can, I can participate in this. That's the way most people are living. We live for men's applause. We live to be noticed. We live to receive honor and recognition for our name. And yet Paul, Paul writes that those who are living the risen life, those who are risen with Christ, they do everything, everything. You see those two words, in word and in deed. That's everything. That's the things that you say and the things that you do. And by the way, the thing that, that also include, would include the things that you think because, because before a word ever comes out of your mouth, you're thinking about it first. So if I'm gonna please the Lord and I'm gonna live for the honor and glory of the Lord in the things that I say, that means my thought life has to be right and it has to be pure as well. So this encompasses everything in word and in deed. Paul writes that all of those things ought to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. That person, if they receive any recognition, oh, they're so quick to redirect it back to the Lord. So this new goal, listen, it's it's really impactful because it addresses so many of the roles that we play in our lives. In other words, if I'm living for the Lord as opposed to living for myself, if that's my goal, it's going to impact every role and responsibility that I have or that I play in life. And he lists, he lists the roles, and he says, listen, if, the, if, if you're living the risen life, you have a new goal, and that is to honor and glorify the Lord and to do everything in the name of the Lord. And so that means that it's going to affect, it's going to impact the way that you're living in the various roles that you play. And notice, notice he addresses them one by one. First of all, the risen, goal, risen life features a new goal. And here's the, here's the new goal. If I'm going to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, number one, then wives should submit. Wives should submit. That's what he says. Look at verse number 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. So Paul writes that wives are to submit to their own husbands. This is the new goal. This is the new goal for wives who are risen with Christ. Why, listen, wives who are not risen with Christ, uh, or they don't, they're not living like they're risen with Christ, they're not all that concerned or all that interested in this, in this thing called submission. And that's the world that we're living in, isn't it? 
Most, most women, most women are, are horrified, horrified by this kind of teaching. Now, not necessarily women in this room, but women outside of this room would be. Huh, you mean to tell me that I am to submit to my husband? And by the way, we talked a little bit about influences. You do know that Hollywood and the media the media is bombarding you with the influential message that, that you know, wives, you're, you're so much smarter than your husband, he's just a dope. He has no idea what he's doing. That's, that's the world that we're living in. There has not been, there has hardly been a movie or a sitcom, uh, for those of you that even watch that kind of stuff, there's hardly been one that has been made in probably the last 30 years in which the man is a, is, is a, is a leader in his home. The world, listen, the world is bombarding us with this message that men are idiots, men are fools, and that, and that, and that women should be running everything. That's, that's the message of the world. God says, God says, no, hold on a minute. It's not, not, to, say that, it's not to say that women are the fools, not, 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 not in any way, shape, or form, but it is to say this, wives are to submit. So the Bible teaches. And we don't see a whole lot of that in our world. Why? Because so few people are living the risen life. They don't know the Lord. This is the new goal for wives who are risen with Christ. And, 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 and can I say that the, the why is listed here. He says at the end of the verse, he says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. You should do this because it is fit in the Lord. You know what that means? That means it is proper. It's proper. It's the right thing to do. You know what he's saying? He's, ta- he's taking us back. He's taking us all the way back to the very beginning. He's, he's, saying, he's saying, consider the created order in the book of Genesis. Why should you do this? Because it's the right thing to do. Because it's the proper thing to do. Because it is even, it is even the created order in which God created things. You see, the Bible tells us that Adam was first formed and then Eve. So God made Adam the head there's, there's, there's so much, listen, that is broken in our world today. But listen, a wife submitting to her own husband, listen, that looks a whole lot like what, what God intended a, in a perfect world to be. Think about that for a moment. Sometimes we walk around and we get so frustrated and so annoyed with what a mess things are in and we're constantly complaining. But you know what, you know what women, ladies that are here tonight, wives that are here tonight, listen, if you could get a hold of this truth and you could say, listen, if I can, if I can start to submit to my husband, then, then our home can look a whole lot like the home that God established and that God ordained before the whole thing was made a mess. It's fit in the Lord. It's proper. It's appropriate. It's the right thing to do. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.13, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. That is a profound statement. And Paul, of course, in this particular text, he's talking about leadership in the church. He's talking about who is to speak and who is to teach in the church. And he's giving a case that the woman should not be someone who is leading or speaking or teaching in a church. And, and, he, and he, uses the, he uses this thought, that the created order, he says, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. And as a result, as a result, then then women are, are to be in a, in a role of submission. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now you, you must understand, you must understand that this is, um, is not popular in 2022. It's not. It's not. In fact, in, in fact, if there were, if there were people that were get a, to get a hold of this recording, they'd, they'd run wild with it. But I want you to know something. We make no apology for it because it's Bible. It's Scripture. Now, this, this does not mean, this does not mean, we're going to talk about what the man has to do. This does not mean that the man runs roughshod over his wife and that he abuses her and he belittles her and he makes it, no, not in any way, shape, or form, but it does mean, it does mean that the wife is to submit to her own husband because it is fit, it is proper in the Lord. And so, ladies here tonight who are, find yourselves as wives, young ladies here tonight who would like to find yourself as a wife someday, understand, here's what God expects of you. If you're gonna do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, then you're gonna need to submit to your own husband because that's fit in the Lord. Notice, men, what are we to do? Husbands, love. So here's the new goal. Wives, submit. Husbands, love. Verse number 19. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Now, Paul is very consistent in his writing, isn't he? Because he, he, he's, he's already written these, these things in Ephesians chapter number five, but that was to the church at Ephesus. 
And because the church at Ephesus couldn't just, you know, hit copy and paste and send this as an email to the church at Colossae, Paul writes it all over again for the church at Colossae because it's good word. It's a good word. It's good teaching. And so he tells the wives to submit in Ephesians chapter number five and to reverence their husbands. And he tells the husbands to love their wives in Ephesians chapter five. And he does the same thing here in Colossians chapter number three. So he's very consistent in, in, in his writing. He does, he, he, he's, he says, listen, he says, naturally, men, you're going to love yourself. And, and you will. I will. We all do. We love ourselves. We want everything to, to accommodate us, to make us comfortable, and to make us feel good. But listen, if you're risen with Christ, you should love your wife as much as you love yourself. That's the new goal. And for to live for God's glory. At the end of the verse, listen, at the end of the verse, it tells us not to be bitter against them. What do you suppose that means? When we think about bitter, we, we think about someone who has a nasty attitude towards someone, but oftentimes it, it does not reveal itself. But I don't think that's the bitterness that he's talking about here. In other words, I don't think it's this, this resentment, this harboring resentment that a, that a husband has towards his wife. Now, that, I suppose that could happen, but I don't necessarily think that's what he's saying here. Here's what I, here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying that, that our words and our actions ought not to be bitter. As we interact with our spouse, man, as you interact with your wife, you ought not to bark at her. You ought not to, you know, to shout at her. You ought not to demean her. You ought not to disrespect her. Oh, you ought, to, you ought to speak in a way that is kind and loving and beautiful and, and, and as opposed to bitter and morose and, and churlish or ill-natured. Uh, don't deny your wife affection. Don't deny her provision. Don't deny her care and protection. Listen, listen, what I'm saying is this. Husbands, make your presence in the home pleasant and joyful. What I'm saying is your, your wife and your children, when, when you pull into the drive, they ought not to be like, oh, no. And we chuckle about that a little bit. But that happens, doesn't it? It's like, man, we were living a great life until he showed up. I mean, everything was great, and there was peace, and there was harmony. And now, and now dad's home. I remember when we were little boys. Um, I, I, remember, I remember, you know, we, we'd be home all day with our mother, and, and, um, and that was great. But there's some, you know, something about dad, right? There's something about father. And when dad would come home, you know, it was time to throw a ball around. It was time to mow the lawn, you know. With mom in the home, it's time to dust. <laughs> it's time to run a vacuum cleaner. You know my mother. That's how it was, you know. <laughs> Make your beds, straighten them up, pick this up off the floor, pick that off the floor. But when dad came home, oh, man, it was time to roughhouse. It was time to go back in the backyard. It was time to ride bikes. It was time to shoot hoops. It was time to do this. It was time to do that. And so I can remember as little boys, my mom probably remembers this as well, that when dad would pull into the driveway, we'd, we'd run to the front door and we would bang on the front door, dad's home, dad's home. And, and, uh, and, and I know my mom, she was banging on the, dad's home, I get a break finally from these three boys, you know. But you know, in a lot of homes, that's not how it works. A lot of homes, dad pulls in and everybody goes, oh no, oh no. Listen, that's not the way it ought to be, man. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be bitter against them. In other words, don't, don't, don't be nasty to them. Don't be rude. Don't be unkind. Don't be insensitive to them. That's the new goal for a husband. Husbands love. Number three, children obey. We're talking about the new goal for those who are living the risen life. If you're a wife tonight, you, you, you know what God wants you to do. You need to submit. If you're a husband, you know what God wants you to do. He wants you to love your wife. If you're a child here tonight, you know what God wants you to do? He wants you to obey. Verse number 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Don't you love how he tells us what to do, and then he tells us why we ought to do it? Isn't that wonderful? That's good teaching right there. The children, listen, children on their own will defy, they'll disobey, and they will rebel. That's, that's what children on their own, in their own flesh, and in their, in, their, in their own nature, naturally they will be inclined to do that sort of thing. Paul writes that children who are risen with Christ should obey. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment. I want us to consider that, that by including children here in this passage of Scripture, this, this, this makes a, a tremendous theological statement to us. And here's the theological statement is this, that children can be saved, children can be saved, 
And when a child then is saved, then there is a reasonable expectation that that child begins to grow and develop in their faith. Sometimes we, sometimes we, we have this attitude of, well, they're just kids. What are you going to do? And you know, I, I, find, I find sometimes that we have that attitude towards teenagers as well. Well, they're just adolescents. This is the time to act like an idiot. I mean, honestly, no, nobody comes out and says that, but when, when you have idiotic behavior and, 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 and you have children, children doing very immature things and you have adults excusing it and saying, well, they're just kids. You know, this is a time to get that all out of your system. That, that's not compatible with what the word of God teaches. The word of God says that children ought to obey. Children ought to obey. That children have the capacity. They do. We just, we've just have so lowered the standard. We have so dumbed things down in our culture, in our world, that we just excuse everything because kids will be kids. Teenagers will be teenagers. And you know what that leads to? That leads to 40-year-olds will be 40-year-olds. And saying God paints a far different picture. And he says that children ought to obey their own parents in all things, not just in some things, in all things. And when that, when that, when that statement is made, again, don't miss this. He's saying that children can be saved and that children can live a life that reflects that that faith is real in their heart and in their life. They can, they should. And we ought to hold them to that standard. Now their obedience, listen, is to be in all things and here's what I want to say. You say, well, how long should someone obey their parents in all things? I think, I think children should be obedient in all things until they are no longer in the home and until they're no longer being supported by their parents. Once they're, once they're out of the home and they're self-supporting, then at that point, then what, what can you do, right? And they're going, to live, they're, they're, they're going to live their own life and they're going to do their own thing. And some of you have, have experienced that there's great joy in that to see your children carry on in the ways that you've taught them. And some of you have lived long enough to see that there is great heartache when your children sometimes stray from the things that you taught them and the, and the values that you held. But at that point, listen, there's not, not a thing that they can do about it. But listen, if a child, listen, if someone's still living in your home or if you're still paying the bills, well, then you have an expectation. You ought to have an expectation that they ought to obey you. And if they don't, well, you know, then you have to make some hard decisions, I suppose. But I'm just simply saying, listen, as long as you're supporting them, in other words, if you're a young person here tonight and you're still on mom and dad's insurance and you're still living in mom and dad's house and you're still driving mom and dad's car and, and, uh, and, and all of these things are true of you, then guess what? You have a responsibility and obligation to obey them in all things. The minute you move out, get your own place, pay your own bills and do your own thing, well then, here, here, you don't have to obey them, but here's what you do have to do. I believe you still have to honor them. I believe you have to, I, I, and, that, and that just means showing respect, uh, show, showing them that, there is, that they, they have worth and value in your life and that they can speak into your life. But I'm just simply saying children are to obey. And why should children obey? Well, it's listed. Here's why, because it pleases the Lord. It pleases him. And you say, but, but you don't know Listen, remember, remember, remember what we're doing. We have a new goal in life. We're, we're doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that eliminates a lot of our excuses and a lot of why we can't do this and why we can't do that. And I'm living for the Lord Jesus, and because of that, he tells me to obey. Very quickly, notice the fourth thing, fathers provoke not. Verse 21, fathers provoke not your children to anger, lest they be Discouraged. Again, we see consistency in Paul's writing because he says something very similar in Ephesians chapter six and verse number four. And here's, here's the point. Fathers, men sometimes can be harsh. They can be impatient and they can be demanding. Many times men leave the home and they go out into the world to make a living and, to, and, and sometimes it's, the world is a very harsh place. It's a very demanding place. It's a very impatient place. And sometimes, sometimes men bring that home with them. I say that, that while that may be the world that we live in, it's not, it, it's not the world that we ought to bring into our homes. We're to be, that's, and that's why, by the way, this is why we're to be under the influence of God's word because God's word tells us that that type of thing is not acceptable. It's not pleasing the Lord. Men are not typically nurturers, so they might sometimes struggle to connect with their children in the home. But listen, this natural way of man will sometimes be to provoke children the, the, and what happens, listen, here's what happens. Children eventually get discouraged and they believe that there is no way on this earth that they can please their parents and so they just give up altogether. 
The fathers must be spirit-filled in their homes so as not to provoke their children to anger. Because when that happens, listen, it leads to discouragement. The fifth thing that we find here, and we'll close with this tonight, is this. Here's a new goal for servants. Servants, obey. Verse number 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Those who are risen with Christ, listen, they obey their authority, not just when that authority figure is present or just when they might be recognized or noticed. No, the obedience, listen, the obedience of many is born out of eye service or to please men. God says, if you're risen with Christ, that's not sufficient. Eventually, listen, eventually a man is going to disappoint you, which would lead a man to think, well, he's, he's, he's disappointed me, so now I have the right to disobey because I've seen maybe some level of inconsistency in my master or in my authority figure. Can I say that if this is the basis of your obedience, what happens then when your authority is not present? When they're not around? Well, now I can just kind of do whatever I want to do. But that's not what the scriptures teach. The Bible says, says servants obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Listen, those who are risen with Christ, they obey because they fear the Lord, not because they fear their master. They acknowledge that no matter what, the master may not be around, but God is always around. God is always watching. He is always beholding what we're doing. And that ultimately, listen, ultimately, I am not accountable to a master. I'm accountable to Jesus Christ. And so are you. I'm not, even, I'm not even so much accountable to my wife as I am the fact that I'm accountable to Jesus Christ who gave me my wife. And you wives, you're not accountable to your husband so much as you're accountable to Jesus Christ who gave you your husband. So understand, listen, the risen life's goals influence the totality of our lives. They influence our lives at home. They influence our lives at work. And, and by the way, that, those are the two places where you and I will spend the majority of our lives is at home and at work. And the risen life, the risen life, those who are living it, notice that it, it, it adjusts, it affects the way that they live in those two places. So how are we doing in living the risen life? Listen, I don't expect any of us to have mastered these things. What I'm saying is I think probably in all of us, I know there isn't me, in all of us, there probably is some twinge of conviction. Some, 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 some twinge of the Holy Spirit of God who's sort of poking our lives tonight saying, hey, that's you. That's you. That's me. I, I, I don't have the right influences. Maybe I'm not allowing the word of God to influence me or I'm not around other believers as much as I ought to be or I'm, I'm not listening to godly music. Perhaps maybe it's in the area of goals and maybe I've resisted, I've rejected the goals that God would have me to play for the roles that he's given me to play in life. And maybe as a wife, you're not submitting. Maybe as a husband, you're not loving Maybe as a child, you're not obeying. Maybe as a father, you're provoking your children. Or maybe as a servant, you're not obeying and doing what your master has given you to do. I don't expect any of us to master these things. But, but shouldn't we be, be desiring to, to be better in these areas? And shouldn't we be working on these things? Listen, that's, that's revival. When we start saying, you know, whatever the word of God says, I want to do it. And when he shows me that I'm wrong, I confess it, I repent of it, and I restore it. I get it right in my life. That's what revival is. Revival isn't, a, it isn't a, a stick over the head that you never even saw coming. Revival is God's people saying, what does this book teach? And let me live according to what this book teaches.